0: Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever." Well, my name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here at Exilic. I want to welcome you to our church today on our five-year birthday. Uh, When I was in seminary, I had a uh, classmate who was serving at a historic church that was over 125 years old. And so in comparison to that, our five-year anniversary seems quite embryonic, Uh, but a lot does happen over the course of five years, doesn't it? Uh, Perhaps the most visible thing is that we've grown from five to almost 500 people that meet uh, every single week. And no, this was not something that I imagined, I predicted, or I architected or anticipated. To be honest with you, when our church had gone from five to 25, I thought I was Billy Graham speaking at a crusade. I mean, that's certainly the way that I felt. And so I I certainly did not have a goal or a mission to, to create this big church or anything like that. Uh, Rather, the goal and mission of our church has always been uh, to inspire thinkers to believe and to inspire believers to think and for seekers and the most skeptical in our city to develop a relationship with God and for Christians to deepen their relationship with God. And by the grace of God, that's something that we've been able to see over the past five years. And so if there's one thing that has been impressed on my heart this past week, it is the fact that Jesus is the builder of Exilic. He is the builder of his church. And that's something that I wanna impress on your heart today as well. And so if there's one phrase that I wanna take a look at from the verses that we just read, it is that phrase when Jesus says, I will build my church. And I just want to parse it uh, three different ways. And the first one is when Jesus says, I will. When Jesus says, I will, inherent within that phrase is a promise. He doesn't say, I won't, but he says, I will build my church. And so what that means is that the church will never vanish. It will never disappear. It will never go extinct. It will never be exterminated, the church is here to stay. It's been around for thousands of years, and you know what? The church will be around for thousands of more years as well, long after us. And one of the reasons why I say that is because over the past 50 years, it's been in vogue to say, as our society increases technologically, scientifically, that religion will decrease And what we have seen take place over the last 50 years is our society increasing technologically and scientifically, but what we've also seen is religion just as much advancing and increasing as well. I wanna read you something on the first page of your bulletin uh, from Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God. And this is what he says, in 1966, John Lennon represented this consensus when he said, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. However, this hasn't happened as advertised. Religion is on the rise, and the emergence of the more strident and outspoken new atheists may be, in fact, a reaction to the persistence and even resurgence of vibrant uh, religion. I was talking with a... uh, I'm not sure if he's agnostic or atheist, but it was a journalist that wanted to write a piece about our church and how our church has been able to grow, uh, despite the fact that we uh, live in a secular city like New York. And one of the things that this journalist rightly said when I was talking with him is that he says that a lot of people think that secularism is growing and religion is not. But the truth of the matter is, secularism is growing, but only with one specific demographic for everyone else, religion is actually growing, not secularism. And that's one of the things that we've actually seen take place in New York City. 30 years ago, the number of center city New Yorkers that were going to a gospel center church was 1%. That was 30 years ago. Today, that number is closer to eight, nine, or ten percent. And we believe that by twenty twenty-six-ish, that nearly fifteen percent of center city New Yorkers will be going to a gospel-based church based upon all of the new networks that are starting, based upon all of the new church churches and church plants that uh, are being born. We believe that number can jump almost to uh, 15%. And so all this to say God is on the move and Jesus is the one that is building his church, even in one of the most least church cities uh, in the nation. And I want to contrast that with another movement that started just a few years ago called the Sunday Assembly. The Sunday Assembly was advertised as a church without God a church exclusively for atheists. It started in Britain, and within a matter of years, they had chapters all over the world. But just as quickly as the Sunday Assembly was being born and multiplying all over the world, it was just as quickly vanishing as well. I wanna read you a piece from an article in The Atlantic on the first page of your bulletin from Faith Hill. In a piece that she entitled, They Tried to Start a Church Without God. For a while, it worked, and this is what she says. The New York Sunday Assembly was everything that Justina Walford had been hungering for since leaving her faith. Meetings involved sermons from scientists, artists, and academics. Members sang pop songs together and snapped their fingers to poetry readings. Old-timers chatted by the snack table and invited noobs to meals outside the group. I just fell in love with it, Walford said. I loved the singing. I loved the interaction. I loved once a month seeing the same people. She became an organizer, one of the leaders of the chapter, working long volunteer hours to put each service together. That lasted for a couple of years, and then things began to fall apart. Secular congregations can become as meaningful as religious ones, but there has to be a sense of transcendence. Transcendence is what gives a community a higher level of meaning than going to Johnny's Little League game. The irony is that to get away from religion, they may need to recreate it. And so the church has something that the Sunday Assembly does not have, and it is a sense of transcendence, but not only a sense of uh, something transcendent, but someone that is transcendent. The church was not started on a Kickstarter campaign with savvy entrepreneurs and large donors. The church is not a man-made thing. The church is a God-made thing. Let me pose it another way. What do you think Jesus is doing right now? We know what he did 2,000 years ago. He died for our sins, rose again three days later, sits at the right hand of God. What do you think he's doing right now as we speak? What Jesus is doing right now is many things, but one of the primary things that Jesus is doing now is that he is building his church. So what does it look like to build a church? Well, whenever you build anything, you need at least two things. You need materials, and you need tools. So what are the materials that God uses to build his church? Well, it's not brick and mortar, but the materials that God uses to build his church are people. After all, the church is not a building. The church is the people. So that's you. That's me. That's someone like Shu. Now, what is the tool that he uses to build this material into a building? The tool that he uses is gospel proclamation to every man, woman, and child. That is the way that Jesus builds his church. And so whether that's to Kanye West or to your average New Yorker, the gospel needs to be proclaimed to every man, woman, and child. You know, in 2013, Kanye wrote a song, and in one of the songs he wrote, I Am a God. This past year, just one month ago, he releases an album called Jesus is King. Now, I know that even the most uh, stringent Kanye apologists are even somewhat skeptical about him actually coming to know God. And so let me read you something that Kanye himself said in one of his songs. It's not in your bulletin. I'm tempted to rap it, but (laughs) I tried it, and it just sounded so bad. So I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Um, In one of his songs, he says, yes, I understand your reluctancy, but I have a request. You see, don't throw me up. Lay your hands on me. Please pray for me. Now, I don't know the heart of every man. I certainly don't know the heart of Kanye. But it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit if Jesus is building his church one by one, even with the most unlikeliest of people. And through gospel proclamation, heralding the gospel to every man, woman, and child. Now, here's the question. What in the world is the gospel? Well, the gospel is not necessarily just a genre of music. The gospel is embedded in one single question that Jesus asked to his disciples here in these verses, and that question is this, who do you say that I am? The answer to that question is really the heart of what the gospel is all about. I once heard someone say that the most important question in the world that someone can ask is this, why? Why this? Why that? Now that's really, really good, but there is one question that supersedes even the question why, and that is the question, who do you think Jesus is? The theologian A.W. Tozer once said, whatever comes into your mind when you think about who God is is the most important thing about you. Let me say that one more time. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God That is the most important thing about you. So who do you think that Jesus is? During Jesus' time, some people thought that he was John the Baptist, others thought that he was uh, Elijah, others thought that he was Jeremiah. Needless to say, there was confusion about the identity of the person of Jesus. And you know what, it's not that different today. Muslims believe that Jesus was a good prophet, but he was not God. Uh, Mormons believe that Jesus was created by God, and so he certainly could not be the equivalent of God. Um, Secularists believe that Jesus was a nice guy, but he certainly was not God. To this day, there is misunderstanding about who the person of Jesus is, and so who do you think that Jesus is? That is one of the questions that he asks his disciples, and in verse 16, this is what Simon Peter says. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The word Messiah simply means anointed one or savior. And he says that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, not a lifeless God without any power, but the son of the living God. In other words, he is God himself, God incarnate. And if I can read you one last thing on the first page of her bulletin, In a book that C.S. Lewis wrote called God in the Dock*, this is what he says about the identity of Jesus. And Lewis says, if you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma, he would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus, he would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Mohammed and asked, are you Allah, he would have first rent his clothes and then cut your head off. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic suffering from that form of delusion which undermines the whole mind of man. And so, what Lewis is saying is this when it comes to the identity of Jesus, you really have two options. He is either Lord based upon what he says and what he did, or he's a lunatic. But he can't just be a nice guy or a good moral teacher. You're forbidden from saying that. He's either Lord or he really is crazy. So why is it that Christians believe then, based upon those two options, why is it that Christians believe that he is actually Lord? Let me give you a few reasons why Christians believe that Jesus is Lord. In this passage, it says that Jesus is building his church. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus isn't the only one that's building something. Every one of us in this room is trying to build something with our lives. You could be trying to build an empire with your startup. You could be trying to build a church. You could be trying to build your portfolio resume. You might be trying to build a family. You might be trying to build new friendships in this new city that you live in. But the truth of the matter is we are all building something with our lives. And the point is this. If you build your life upon anything else other than God, it is like building a house with foundations that have quicksand underneath it eventually it will come sinking because it is not placed on a solid rock. And so one of the ways of finding out what you are building your life towards is by simply taking a look at your desires. What do you desire out of life? Because your desires point to what you're trying to build with your life. That's what your desires point to. I haven't, I might be the only person in this room that has never read a Harry Potter book or seen a Harry Potter movie for which I repent. Um, But I do know that in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, there is this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. And Erised is simply the word desire spelled backwards. And anyone that looks at the Mirror of Erised, that mirror shows them their desires. And so one of Harry's friends, Ron, takes a look at the mirror of Erised, and he sees this older, better-looking version of himself as the captain of the Quidditch team, which I have no idea what that is, but it's like riding on a broom or something. And he's like successful, everyone loves him, and popular and all that, and that's his desire. That's what he wants to build his life towards. That's how he makes a name for himself. And so, little Harry comes up in front of the mirror of Erised and takes a look at the mirror as well. And what he sees is not himself playing Quidditch, but what he sees is his deceased parents. You see, when Harry was just a little boy, his mom and dad passed away, so he never really developed a relationship with them. And so, that was his desire. And so, day after day, little cute Harry would come at the foot of the mirror, take a look at it, and just stare at his deceased parents. And eventually, one day, um, uh, uh, Dumbledore—I i, I always I say Gandalf—Dumbledore comes, and um, Dumbledore comes, and he says, "Harry, Harry, uh, many men." This, this mirror, it neither shows you any knowledge or truth. In fact, this mirror shows you lies. Many men have wasted away looking at this mirror. Some have even gone mad. And what Dumbledore was saying is the same thing that the Bible was saying. And what it's saying is this, when you desire things, they even might be good things, not bad things, but if you build your life exclusively on these desires alone apart from God, it is like building a house once again on quicksand. Now why is that the case? Let me give you a couple of reasons why. One of my wife's favorite shows is Million Dollar Listing New York. And if you've never seen it before, it's about uh, a bunch of real estate agents. The number one real estate agent in New York City is a agent named Frederick, who's like one of my favorite characters in the show. Frederick is this real estate mogul, and all the agents have relationships with contractors that make these luxurious buildings, and Frederick has the best relationships with the most powerful contractors in our city, but there's this young, very ambitious, ambitious, prodigious real estate agent that's up and coming named Steve, and Steve also wants to be the number one real estate agent in New York City. And so he begins to schmooze with some of Frederick's contractors. And so Frederick realizes what Steve, Steve is doing and says, hey, don't, don't talk with him. I, I, I work with him. And so Steve says, well, what are you talking about? You don't have a monopoly on all the contractors. And and Frederick goes, stay out of my lane. Stay out of my business. You find your own contractors. And so Stephen says, hold on a second. I've seen you talk to other contractors that work with other agents. So why can't I do the same? This is fair game. And and so Frederick is, is heated at the thought that this young, ambitious real estate agent is about to threaten his empire, everything that he's built his life up to, but that rage quickly turns into sadness and grief at the thought of it being threatened. And this is something that Frederick says in after their heated argument. And Frederick says to Stephen, this is who I am. I've devoted my whole life to this. What I care about is my business. You don't understand. It's who I am, identity and I can't be anything else other than this. Do you see what I mean when I say that if you build your life on exclusively your desires, apart from a desire for God, it is like quicksand, why? Because Frederick was building his life upon being a real estate mogul, but as soon as that was being threatened, his foundation began to crack. If you build your life on anything other than God, that's exactly what's gonna happen. You might even build your life on your family, finding a spouse, having kids, but even if you build your life on that, suffering and death can unfortunately even take your spouse and family away, and then what are you gonna do? If you build your life on anything other than God, that is a very shaky and precarious foundation to build your life on. But if you build your life on God, the solid rock, nothing can ever take away your relationship from God, not even death itself. Romans 8 says, Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But let me give you a second reason why we believe that Jesus is King, why Jesus is Lord you might desire to be a very successful person in life. And so you might work overtime hours, you pour your energy, your sweat, you burn the midnight oil, you sacrifice your social life, you might even sacrifice your faith for your job. But do you know what? Your job, it will never sacrifice itself for you. You might pour your blood, sweat, and tears into your job, but your job will never do the same for you, nor will any of the other things that you desire. But there is one who does give himself from you. Jesus gladly gives his life for you. He sacrifices his life for you. And when you understand that, that that building your relationship on God is unshakable, and when you understand that he will give his life for you, how can you not be in a relationship with him? In this verse, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, in ancient cities, they always had gates. Okay, So I haven't read Harry Potter, but I have read Lord of the Rings. So there are gates around ancient cities, and the gates symbolize a city's strength. If you couldn't penetrate the gate, it meant that the city was strong. If you could penetrate it, it meant that the city was weak. right? And so the, the gates symbolize strength. And so when it talks about the gates of Hades in this passage, what it's talking about is that the, it's talking about the power of death. And when Jesus says that not even the gates of Hades will prevail over the church, what he's saying is that not even the power of death will prevail over you. That Jesus Christ has taken the sting of death away. How? 2,000 years ago, Jesus not only died for our sins, but he stormed through the gates of Hades and he came back again. In other words, Jesus rose again from the dead. And because he rose again from the dead, he defeated death itself. And in his death and life, we too can experience victory and death and life as well. Now, you might be thinking, I was listening to everything that you were saying up to this point. Scientifically, it is impossible for a dead man to come back to life again. Death has a 100% success rate. We will all die, and that will be it. And you're right. A dead man cannot come back from the grave. But what if he wasn't just a man? What if he was more than just a man? What if he was also God? Then wouldn't it be possible if he was God? Wouldn't it be possible for him to defeat death? And if he did defeat death, couldn't it possibly mean that he is also God himself? And when so Jesus says that not even the gates of Hades can prevail over the church. He's talking about the power of death. And that means that lesser powers cannot prevail over the church either. Whether that is communism in China, ISIS in the Middle East, materialism and secularism in the West, nothing can prevail over the church. The church will never die. It will never, be, will never vanish. It will never be exterminated. It will always be here because Jesus is the one that is building his church. And what that means then is, I am not the face of exilic, nor are any of our wonderful pastors. This is not my church. This is Jesus's church. And clearly, he is the one that is building our church, not me. And when you understand that Jesus is the one building his church, who dies for his church, and loves his church, what that means is you kind of have to do the same. I realized that no church is, any perfect, is perfect, including ours. The only perfect assembly that gathers every week is not at 10.30 and 12.30. The only perfect assembly that there is is in heaven. There is no perfect church, but you know what? Jesus loves the church, and so should you. And if he is building his church, we have an opportunity to be instruments in the hands of this redeemer this architect that is also building the church. And how does he build it again? The tool that he uses is gospel proclamation to every man, woman, and child. And similarly, we have the privilege of doing the same. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here, I'm assuming none of you would be moved at all to actually do it. You might cognitively understand what I'm saying, but in terms of your emotional heart, you might not be moved yet. And since our mission statement does have the word inspire twice, let me attempt to inspire you, to move you, to share this gospel to all the people that are in your networks. A few weeks ago, an old friend of mine, his father passed away. But before his father died, his father had an opportunity to write a letter to everyone that he knew. Now, when a man is dying and utters his final words, you should pay attention because when you're on the brink of another world, all of a sudden things that we thought were so important don't seem important to us anymore. Fantasy scores, food, travel, certainly putting more hours into our office work, that definitely doesn't matter. Certain things don't matter anymore. What we thought was important seems quite superfluous when we're on the brink of another world. Instead, the things that ought to matter, God, people, all of a sudden start to ring a lot more important. And I wanna read to you a letter that he wrote, some of his final words before he died that I wanted to share with you. And he says, beloved friends, Earlier this year, I was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease, also known as ALS. Since then, I have been unable to speak and require a four-point cane to walk. As I think of my end nearing, heaven has become the desperate desire of my heart. It is a place I absolutely must go, but as I reflect on my life as a saint, I realize that there was nothing saintly about my life at all and so I spend much of my time repenting, reading the Bible, and watching about 10 sermons on YouTube every single day. It has been a long time since I felt the joy of salvation in worship, and I think of how if I just skipped one round of golf or one dinner with my friends, the money saved could have fed a child in Africa for a month. Instead, I lived a tactless and lousy life, judging, hating, and slandering others. Through genuine pleas to the Lord for forgiveness, I believe I have been washed by the blood of Christ and have received hope for heaven. But one thing that still burdens my heart is the fact that I did not evangelize to others. I've done away with the bad habits in my life and I see myself as a new person, but the fact that I have not evangelized is still a burden in my heart. Therefore, I carefully write this letter to you. We all need to take a hard look at ourselves. How good and how evil must we look in the eyes of God? God loves all those who are alive. Jesus died for everyone in the world and God has provided the sun and the air equally for all. If we do not have this desire, we must check ourselves immediately. I am fortunate to have been provided enough time to repent and prepare myself, but for many in this world there is a death that comes without any sense of warning. If you have been evangelizing, continue to do so with passion and sincerity. But if you have yet to do so, start evangelizing immediately in response to your salvation. If you don't have assurance of your salvation, pray to God and he will provide. He will provide transformation if you genuinely realize your depravity and repent earnestly. And with this heart, you will save the world. Knowing that I will die soon, what can I rejoice about or be thankful for? In every circumstance, no less, I have the salvation of God. I didn't recognize that the Lord was watching and waiting for me with his hand ready to help. But now that I have been released from darkness, there is so much freedom. In prayer, in obedience, and in following the word, which was once so difficult, I can now nod my head in agreement. However, it is already too late for me, but it's not too late for you. While I'm not able to do anything, you all can do so, so much. Dwell in the Lord and his peace over a long, long life after first assuring your place in heaven. Mark Twain once said that the two most important days of your life is the day you were born and the day you found out why. Why are you here? What is your purpose? Who do you think you are? Much of those answers are found in another question, And that is the question, who do you say that I am? Who do you think Jesus is? Well, Carl Henry once said that uh, the good news is not good news until it arrives in time. Otherwise, it's just old and stale news. One of the reasons why we are here in our city is to make sure the good news arrives to every man, woman, and child. And Jesus is building his church right here at Exilic but it's not enough for him to only build this church. He must build all of the churches in our city because our church is not big enough to reach everyone in our city. And you know what, that's exactly what we've been able to see over the past few years. Jesus is building his church. And you have the opportunity and the privilege of being a part of that as well. Let's pray together. God, we think about what, we, what you did with uh, just 12 people, and you shook and rocked the world, uh, I can only fathom what you could do with four or 500 people uh, to shake our city. Uh, but the only way that can happen is if we are all bought in, not as consumers, but as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And so help us to do that, to live for something bigger than ourselves, Help us to live for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.